I'm reading a letter about a season of wilderness. Dear woman in the wilderness who is loved by God, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what the wilderness looks like that you are currently struggling through. I don't know what the prayers are that you have been crying out to God or what you are begging him for. I don't know what prayers you have given up on, the ones that have remained unanswered. My wilderness has been a desert stretched out in front of me. For a long time, I've been praying for guidance with regards to my career and the plans, future plans for our family. My hopes and dreams didn't seem to match up with my reality, and I desperately wanted God to change that. At first, I was hopeful that the change I wanted would come quickly and that things would easily fall into place. When that didn't happen, disappointment started to set in. Disappointment led to insecurity. Am I worthy of an answer? Distrust crept in. God is just going to leave me to struggle through this on my own. Does he even care? As my disappointment, distrust, and insecurity grew, I found myself moving further away from God. Before I knew it, I was in the middle of a vast and empty desert. I gave up on seeking nourishment, so spending time reading the word and praying happened rarely. It took, a it took a financial crisis to humble me, to bring me to my knees and to realize that not only does God want me to speak to him, but he wants to speak to me. Psalm 119 verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Dear women in the middle of the desert who have allowed un unanswered prayer or unwanted answers to hurt your relationship with the Lord. May you find comfort in the word once again. May you allow the Lord to tend to your brokenness by opening his word and being open to what he has to say. Matthew 7, verse 7 to 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who has asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the doors will be opened. Dear woman who has lost faith, who is wondering whether God hears or cares, may you be given faith that God hears you, that the door will be opened, that you will find what you seek. In my case, I'm learning slowly that the thing I have been seeking so feverishly is less important than my relationship with God. And that God is opening the door slowly. And he will... Oh, sorry, I've lost my place now. <laughs> so, dear woman who has lost faith. Sorry, here I am. <laughs> I'm learning to trust again that he's got this. Psalm 116 verse 2. Because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. Dear woman who has stopped praying, may you be encouraged anew to keep praying, to keep knocking, and to keep asking, like the persistent widow who eventually has given the, the justice she asked for, simply because she would not stop asking. May you continue to call upon the Lord, and may you find comfort in the fact that God wants us to persevere in prayer. Just because he is slow to answer doesn't mean that he won't. I'm not out of the wilderness yet. I'm still praying for the Lord's guidance in my life, but I'm learning to trust God with the outcome, and I'm learning to look for the beauty in the season of wilderness. I've learned that the desert is a harsh place that at first seems like nothing good can come from it. But when you spend enough time there, you start to appreciate the beautiful sunsets, the warm, starry night skies and the tiny little flowers growing in between the rocks. In my season, 
The beauty has been in realizing that God is with me, that he wants to speak to me and he wants to tend to my brokenness. Dear woman in the wilderness who God loves, may you find the beauty in this season. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Anita. That was beautiful. And it fits in so beautifully with what we're going to be looking at today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back if you were here last night, and welcome afresh if this is... Uh, uh, if you weren't here last night, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, for those of you that weren't here, my name is Julie, and I've come all the way from Cape Town and left five kids, which I'm ecstatic about. <laughs> um, and um, just one story that came to mind, seeing as we're all women in this room, um, that I thought I'd share just to kick us off. Uh, it took my boys a bit of time to understand the difference between girls and boys. And, you know, they, they get to that age, I think it's somewhere between two and three, when they're suddenly fascinated by the differences between girls and boys. And I remember with my firstborn, Eli, uh, we've got some good friends, the Termies, Ryan Termeshazen's been with you guys, and um, Eli and Nina are roughly the same age, and they would hang out a lot, and Nina was coming for a play date, and he was probably about two and a half, three, and um, they rang the bell, and we opened the door excitedly, and there was little Nina with her pigtails, and there was Eli to greet her. And the first thing he said was, Nina, do you have a fanny? <laughs> and Kate and I both just looked at each other and looked down. And Nina stood there, and she cocked her head, and she said, no, but I can whistle. <laughs> Which I thought was rather sweet. So welcome to all the real women that can whistle in this room. <laughs> Last night, uh, we spoke about abiding and what it means to truly abide in God and in his love, to, to really find our worth and our identity and our purpose for being on this earth. First, not in bearing fruit, but in learning to abide. Uh, we, I think the, the, the core for me, last night, was, was realizing afresh that the doing word in John 15 is not bear, bear fruit. It's abide in me, abide in my love. And today we're going to be uh, looking at three different stories in the Bible in the three different sections. But my prayer for us is that while we, we look at them, that we would continue to abide and abide more and more in God's love. And the picture that I woke up uh, with this morning, which I believe was from God, was I, I had this word going through my head as I woke up, lean in, lean in. And, and I felt uh, reminded of that picture in the Gospels of John. He's called the disciple that Jesus loved. He, he actually calls himself that. And um, at the Last Supper, we're told he was reclining on Jesus's chest. Isn't that such a beautiful picture of an approachable God. He's not just God of the universe, but he loves it when we recline on his chest. And my prayer for us, and what I feel like God wants to do this weekend, is he wants us all to lean in closer, to learn how to lean in on his chest. My, my son Finn uh, was about four when he called his daddy. He was lying on the top of a couch looking out a window, and he called Taryn and you know, dad, dad. And I remember Taryn going, what, what is it? You know, in the middle of something else. And he said, come here. And Taryn came and he said, come closer. And Taryn came closer. And he said, no, put your cheek on my cheek. And Taryn put his cheek leaning in onto Finn's cheek. And he said, dad, do you see what I see? And he was pointing at something through the window. And that's what I feel like God wants to do with us. He's saying, come closer. And we're like, what, what is it, God? I'm busy. I'm doing stuff. And he says, no, come close. And he wants your cheek to be next to his cheek so he can say, do you see what I see? So that's my prayer for us uh, as we go through today. Yesterday, um, I mentioned about this, this, this theme of seasons, how, how pruning is cyclical, and that we all go through seasons, and that's good, that summer gives way to autumn and winter and spring. We're not meant to just live in a perpetual summer until heaven one day. 
We're meant to find God in all the different seasons and valleys and mountaintops of our lives, not just um, hope that summer is going to last forever. And what I love about, about Christ and a faith in him is that it equips us for all the seasons. It's not just a, a fair weather faith that's just good in summer. And it's not just this grimmest, lemon-sucking faith that's only really appropriate when we're going through the really hard times. A faith in Christ helps us to thrive and abide in him no matter the season. It's a, it's a faith, as we heard today from Anita, for the desert wilderness seasons. And it's a faith for the rich, fertile valleys and mountaintops. It's a faith for all seasons. What I want to share about today is how this faith um, isn't just for seasons, but when we have this faith, a courageous faith, it helps us to properly face our past, our present, and our futures. You see, we can't abide in God if we don't have faith, can we? So I'm going to look at that in the first session. We're going to talk about a courageous faith faith to face our past. The second section uh, session today, a courageous faith to face our present. And in our last session, a courageous faith to face our futures. But before we dive in, it's super important that we all have the same picture in our heads or definition when we talk about faith, because it's another one of those suitcase words that we come in, we all might have a bunch of different thoughts and definitions in our head. I wonder what you have in your heart right now and in your head when you hear that word faith. What does it mean to you to have faith? Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. With this verse in mind, and as I've tried to whittle down my definition of faith to its essence, this is my paraphrase. Faith is what we believe about what we can't see. Faith is what we believe about what we can't see. Faith is what we really, really believe about what we can't see, feel, touch, know with our physical senses. If you apply this definition, then Faith is something we all have, all 7.6 billion of us clinging to the spinning orb that's flung out in the corner of the galaxy. We all have some kind of faith, don't we? We may not be able to articulate it, but it's one of the most important things about, it, about us because it forms the coordinates for every other thing that we do and way that we think. It's the lens through which we see everything else. Our past, our present, our future, and the world around us. It's invisible, our faith, and yet it's as undeniable a force as gravity. We exercise faith every day. I got into a high-pressurized metal tube that hurtled me into the sky to get here today. I didn't inspect the engines before I got in. I couldn't prove that the pilot had his license and that it was up to date. I didn't know that, but I had faith that I was going to land in East London, <laughs> that everything would be okay. I had faith in the system, that the engines would work, that people would do their jobs in science and things I don't understand, like aerodynamics. I had faith in what I couldn't see. You have faith every time you cruise through a green traffic light without looking left or right in other people's ability to be on the roads and to also abide by the rules. There's always an element of the unknown in faith, too. It doesn't take faith for you to believe right now that it's Saturday, the 5th of October, and that you're in Sterling, does it? You don't, you don't need faith for what you've already got and what you can see with your physical senses. Faith is what we believe about what we cannot see. So if faith is what we believe about what we cannot see and that we all have it, Christians or otherwise, then what is Christian faith? Or what we're calling courageous faith this weekend? I believe it's really believing what God says about what we can't see. So faith is 
what we believe about what we can't see, and we all have it, courageous faith is really, really believing what God says about what we can't see. My daughter Ivy, when she was smaller, she used to say when she really was emphatic about something, for real life, mom, for real life. So faith in God is really believing for real life what God says about what we can't see. And like general faith, this kind of faith is not something we can generate. It is a gift. Ephesians 2 and Romans 12 stresses that. And isn't that remarkable? We all have a kind of natural instinct for human faith, but there's a supernatural faith that only God can give us. Isn't that amazing? And if you've decided to follow Christ in this room today, in your, in your past, it means you've been given a supernatural gift of faith to do that, to believe in a God that you cannot see and to believe what he says. That's amazing. It's a gift. In Hebrews, we're told that Christ is the author and perfecter of this faith. Another remarkable thing, we're given the supernatural gift of faith that we could not generate on our own. And then he goes to work in us and on us to perfect that faith in us. This is unlike any other kind of faith that we can generate. And it changes everything. Going back to Hebrews 11 and that definition of faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. 11 verse 1. That Greek word for confidence is hypostasis. And it means a substance, a firmness, a guarantee, a proof. This isn't some kind of like wishy-washy, uh, up and down confidence. This is something that is a guarantee, a proof. It was also the same word, hypostasis, used in ancient Greek for the term title deed. So faith is a title deed in what we cannot see. A title deed is, is proof that you own something, even if you're not standing on it. So in God, you've been given the title deeds through his promises to some things that maybe you haven't already got, but it's as good as if you've got them. That's faith. It's, it's going, I, I might not be on the land yet, but here I, I own it. It's as much mine as if I was standing on the land. So when God gives you a promise, when he tells you about who he is or who you are or what he is going to do, it's as though you already own it. It's as though you already have it, the title deeds. This kind of faith is not just fingers crossed hopeful. It's supernaturally confident. It's certain. Although you may not physically occupy that promise or that land yet, you have the title deeds. It's as good as done. This is courageous faith. Believing what God says for real life, no matter what a thousand other competing voices and circumstances are saying in contradiction. Not because you must, but because you've been given the faith as a gift, because you just do. And that's my prayer for us this weekend, that God would give us the gift of a deeper faith, of a deeper experience of this courageous faith. For us, because I know when I read through that definition of faith, I know that we don't always have that kind of strong confidence, do we? We can have bruised reed faith, smoldering wick faith, and yet God is so gracious. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he does not snuff out. We can be fragile with our faith and have a faulty, flickering, fickle faith. And yet, God is still gracious, and he's still committed to perfecting our faith. This is good news. And just reflecting on this, I think the most amazing thing that I came across, that I kind of felt as a kind of newfound revelation from God as I thought about my faith, my fragile, faulty faith compared to um, God and what he's done in my life is that the quality of your faith is less important than the object of your faith. Wow. Isn't that amazing? The quality of your faith is less important than the object of your faith. 
Let me give you some examples of this. You might put your faith in something. You might put all your hope in it and sincerely believe in it. The quality of your faith in that instance is super high, isn't it? And yet if the object of your faith is not secure, if it's not actually trustworthy or um, strong, you might think sincerely, you might have faith sincerely that this rickety bridge is going to hold you. But if it is a very rickety bridge, no matter how much you believe in that bridge, when you walk on it, it's going to drop you. Just yesterday, uh, uh, before I came on early in the morning on Friday, my Sam, he's four years old, he's one of our twins, he came stomping in from the garden and he was cross. He had had big faith in a faulty object. He was standing there with a blown-out dandelion. You know those dandelion weeds that you blow on? And we've told our kids that if you blow on them, you can make a wish. And he came through, and he even used the word disappointed. (laughs) And immediately, in one sentence, he said, he's almost five. He said, I am disappointed. (laughs) So I said, what happened, my boy? And he said, I blew on this flower, and I wished very hard that I would get a black mamba in my room immediately. (laughs) And it's nowhere. And he had his cross little eyes on. Sam had big faith, big faith, in a thankfully faulty object. (laughs) To drive this home, that the quality of our faith is less important than the object of our faith, I'm going to ask two friends to come up. So... Can I have two women here? No, you're not going to have, I won't hurt you, embarrass you, I promise. So, any, any two people brave enough to come up? That, but you have to trust each other. So, can you choose someone here that you trust? Anyone? <laughs> Tammy. Great. Right, so you ladies can stand here. Right. So, Tammy, you are going to be the person that you're going to be the the object that uh, Sarah puts her faith in. Okay, the thing that Sarah is 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 having her faith in. So you, so Sarah, do you trust Tammy? Okay, great. So now, if faith is something that we can't see, let me just put this on. Oh yeah, I can see that. Thanks. Okay, so just keep that on. Right. So now Sarah has said that she trusts Sammy. Her, the, the the quality of her faith is quite high. Would you say? Okay, great. Now, Tammy, will you take Sarah by the hand and just lead her gently down to that pram and back? Sarah is exercising faith right now, isn't she? (laughs) She has faith, and now you can come back. She has faith in what she can't see. The quality of her faith is, is strong, and the object of her faith is equally pretty strong. Hey, Right, well done. Well done. Now just stay there, see? We're going to ask Tammy to do that again. So now, Sarah, you're quite confident that Tammy can do that, hey? She's not going to let you down. So the, the quality, has the quality of Sarah's faith changed? Tammy, can you now walk Sarah up these stairs to the back? I'm not actually going to make them do this. <laughs> you can take off the blindfolds. Do you see that the quality of Sarah's faith, doesn't matter how high it is, the object is far more important. What she's putting her faith in. Thank you, ladies. That's all. And I stole these from the decor tables. I'm sorry about that. So. The quality of Sarah's faith didn't change at all, did it? But the object, the, the faultiness of what she was putting her faith in changed. Isn't that wonderful to know, ladies, that the quality of your faith is less important. It's not not important at all, but it's less important than what you choose to hold on to in life. Isn't that beautiful? You don't have to have this perfect faith, but put your faith, your faulty, fragile, smoldering, wick, bruised reed faith onto the right thing, not onto rickety bridges. Right, it's better to have a weak faith in a strong object than strong faith in a weak object. What good news for us, (laughs) us fragile, fickle hearts at times. 
Although at times we may be faithless, Christ says he remains faithful. The object of our faith is rock solid, true, unchanging, and unshakable. This is good news. In Numbers 23, it says, God is not man that he should lie or change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What God has said goes. Faith is really believing what God says. What he has promised us will come to pass. Do you believe this, friends? Do you believe that he works all things to the good of those that love him? Do you know that you know that you know that you cannot outrun his love? That he's not done with you yet, no matter what you came in trailing behind with? That he has plans to bring you into hope and a future, and it's gloriously bright? Do you believe this like you believe that you're in East London now, in Stirling, on the 5th of October 2019? Because it's just as real. Because the object of your faith is trustworthy. Courageous faith is simply really, really for real life, believing what God says about who he is, about who you are, and about the world around us. And it changes everything. It even changes our pasts. Or at least it changes how we see our pasts and the power they have over us now in the present. Now, you may be thinking, oh, Julie, why dwell on the past today? This is a conference. Can't we just look forward? And the answer is because we can't go forward into our futures until we are sure that we're leaving the past in the past, until we address any faulty faith lenses that we might unwittingly carry into our present or our future. You see, how we look back at our past determines how we go into our future. So to help us to do that, we're going to be looking at one of the great mothers of our faith as we explore this this, um, kind of subject and theme, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. In Hebrews, Abraham is called the father of our faith. And I think Sarah, in a sense, is the mother of our faith and our faithlessness. And I want you to know that I didn't just randomly choose a woman in the Bible. I really felt like God chose her for you. In my time of preparing for this, I felt God give me a little a bit of an insight into us here today, that there are Sarahs in our midst. You see, Sarah was barren for most of her life. And likewise, I felt that there are some women here who feel bereft of life here today. Perhaps you feel like God and his goodness have passed you by and that it's just too late for you. This weekend, I feel like God is a doting dad and he wants to remind you of his promises over your life, that the object of your faith is greater than the quality of your faith and your history. Like Sarah, there might be outrageous promises that you felt once were spoken over your life, and yet the bumps in the road have made you cynical and hardened and despairing. A barren cynicalness has crept over you in your heart. And I feel like today God wants to break that over some people and restore a joy and a faith that is supernatural, that's a gift. It's not out of you trying to make it there. It bubbles up like a brook, like a wellspring of life. So today I'd like to look at the the story and uh, suggest that Sarah, as I've said, is not just the mother of our faith, but she's also an echo of all of our faithlessness at times. What I've loved as I've prepared this message is just how unedited the Bible seems to be. We grow up with this false perception sometimes that the biblical characters in the Old Testament were somehow all heroic. And yet when you dig into these stories, they really show us people that are far from perfect. And I think that's such a testament to the Bible being God-inspired, that if, if we were to have written our faith and the stories of our faith fathers um, and the ones upon which our faith is built, we surely would have just, you know, photoshopped some of their 
bad decisions out. And yet our faith is such that the object of our faith is far more important than the quality of our faith and even the, the kinds of people that cast themselves on this faith. It actually shows us that the good, the bad, and the ugly, there's a space for all of us, even when we make some wrong decisions. Isn't that beautiful? So there's so much in the story of Abraham and Sarah, but let's look specifically at how Sarah's skewed view of God affected her ability to let go of the past and have faith in him for her future. How Sarah's skewed view of God stopped her from letting go of the past and holding on to a brighter future. I believe from studying uh, the story that there are five mistakes we can learn as we, as we look at Sarah. And I think these are five mistakes Sarah makes as she looks back at her past without courageous faith. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 16 with me. Verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with her and she conceived. Let me take a moment to set the scene. God had come to Abraham, who was a childless, godless moon worshiper, and he spoke an extraordinary promise over Abraham's life. He said, go to a land that you don't know, and I am going to, and the biggest part of this promise was, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the nations through you. Your descendants are going to outnumber the stars. Wow. What a beautiful promise <laughs> to give to a godless moon worshiper. And Abraham, to his credit, left the land that he knew, and he took his wife. Now 20 years have passed. 20 years. <laughs> That's a long time, hey? Sometimes we get impatient after a few weeks, hey? 20 years have passed. And there's no child. God continued to grace them with his presence every now and then and give them lots of reminders of his promise. But still, two decades go by and there's no child. Their faces grow wrinkled and their faith begins to wane. It has a way of leaking, doesn't it? Despite the high hilltop moments, our faith leaks. And doubt has a way of creeping in. Sarah certainly knows a lot about this. Look at what she says. She says, the Lord has kept me from having children. You see, instead of reaffirming the promises over her life, that she would be the mother of a nation, she begins to do the exact opposite. She begins to replace the truth with a lie about God. The Lord, the Lord has stopped me from having children. And this is the direct opposite of the promise, that God would make her a mother of many. You see, before Sarah made any bad decisions, she jumped to some bad assumptions. Here's what's happened in Sarah's heart and mind. And listen closely, because it happens in each of our hearts and minds too. She doesn't just stop believing the promise. She begins to believe in a different kind of God a version that she's created from looking back at her life, from her experiences and her disappointment, not based on his promises and on ultimate reality and truth. She begins to view God not as her savior, as the one who has lifted her out of a meaningless existence and bestowed on her a beautiful promise and future. She gives up that view and she trades it in to see God as the obstacle of getting what she wants. God has kept me from having children. She sees God as the one who has kept her from the greatest thing she desires in her life. Wow. I wonder how many times we do that in our lives. I know I've done that. If we don't have courageous faith, when we face our pasts, we will make the same mistake. And so here's the first mistake I believe Sarah makes. She believes a lie about God. 
Sarah believes a lie about God. That's her first mistake. She looks back at all her barren years of disappointment, of waiting and heartache, and she concludes that God will not keep his promises, that he is either not competent enough or not compassionate enough. Either way, her faith is fractured. She doesn't really believe in a real God. She begins to doubt whether he really has her best at heart. And it's a deadly mistake because if we doubt that God has our best in mind and if we begin to perceive that he's holding out on us, he's holding back from what we should truly have or be, if we believe he's keeping us from this, we are doomed to follow in Sarah's footsteps and make the second mistake, which is to rush ahead of God. So we, we begin by believing a lie about God. We, we construct our own God formed in our own experience of our pasts and looking back with our courageous faith. And then we rush ahead of God. After Sarah has traded in the truth for a lie, it's not long before she begins to rush ahead of God in impatience. Right, God has kept me from the one thing that would give me life and meaning and purpose. And so I am going to make it happen on my own. She begins to force the outcome. She makes things happen she begins to work on her self-salvation plan. If God's not going to give me a baby, come hell or high water, I am going to make a baby in another way. And the result is an Ishmael. It's always an Ishmael. Rush ahead of God, make your own salvation plans, and like Sarah, you may get your result, but will it bring you more blessing or more pain in your life? If you read on, we don't have time to do it this morning. But Ishmael causes Sarah far more pain in her life than joy. Even though, in a sense, he was her creation. He's a fruit of her rushing ahead of God and not believing God. In the olden days, before Instagram and e-bucks, they used to use sails to harness the wind and get boats to go places. This is in the olden, olden, olden days. But when there was no wind, and they really were determined to go somewhere, they would haul slaves into the rowing boats, tied to the main vessels, and they would get these slaves to drive the boat, even if it killed them, and it often did. It's a much less effective way of getting these huge ships to go somewhere. It's a self-generated way. And it's the same with us. We either wait for the wind, God's resources, his timing, his opportunities, or we get out our little rowboats and we haul our lives in a direction somewhere through our own blood, sweat, and tears. And it often almost costs us our life, doesn't it? How about you? Have you ever lost sight of who God is and then run ahead of him? I think we all have done this in certain ways in our lives. Perhaps you've run into a relationship that you know God wasn't blessing, but you said, God, you're holding out on me. I'm going to make my own plan. Perhaps in terms of the career path that you've gone down, you forced an outcome somehow because in your heart of hearts, you've given up believing what God, that God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That's a promise in scripture. It's a title deed you can hold on to. God acts on behalf of those who wait on him. And the, the opposite is also true. God waits on behalf of those who act before he wants to act. God, God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. When we run ahead of God, it never works out as it should. The human solution to Sarah's barrenness births a multitude of unexpected complications and new problems. And like Sarah, when we rush ahead of God, we will bear an Ishmael. And it will drain us. It will drain us of energy and joy. It will potentially destroy your relationships as it did her. And it will block opportunities that perhaps God had in mind. Let's look at Sarah uh, and the results that Ishmael caused. Most apparent is that running ahead of God backfires on her relationships. Her marriage nearly comes undone. It comes under incredible strain, as you can imagine. And Hagar... And Sarah's relationship degenerates entirely. This was one of uh, 
Sarah's closest confidants and her trusted handmaid. And in the end, they are completely at odds. God is scandalously gracious and patient with us. And this story is a sober reminding, though, that he will not be manipulated to act in accordance with our plans or ways. Just think about it. God was watching over this whole thing. He was the one <laughs> that had waited two years and watched those wrinkles form and that faith wane and then Sarah try and manipulate an outcome. And he doesn't rush in to intervene, does he? <laughs> he waits. God can't be manipulated by our impatience and our desired outcome and time plan for him to act because he is not our cosmic butler. Wow. Instead, just like he did with Sarah, he'll sit back and wait and let your plans unravel. He won't stop you. So run ahead of God, if you must, but at your own peril. Let's read on. There's one more mistake that Sarah makes that I think we all are in danger of making when it comes to how we face our pasts without faith. Verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled. Wow. <laughs> so much in there. But the thing I felt God highlight for us today is mistake number three. When we look back at our past without faith lenses, we blame others. When we look back at our past with our courageous faith, we look at all the mistakes and all the pain, and we blame others. <laughs> Sarah is a girl after our own heart, isn't she? <laughs> so quick to see everybody else's faults, but so slow to see her own. So quick to pick the small speck out of everyone else's eye, and so blinded to the log in her own eye. And we're just the same. We sometimes so angry at the universe for the sloppy seconds it's dished up for us. Instead of accepting some of the responsibility, Sarah self-righteously blames Abraham entirely. And instead of taking any responsibility, he beautifully delegates it all back to Sarah. It's the same pattern we see in Adam and Eve in the garden. As soon as they're confronted by their sin, they both point the finger at one another, don't they? And the blame game never ends. When we do this, when we get into this kind of blame-shifting rut, we sentence ourselves, not the other person, to a stunted, small, bitter life. We will never learn, never grow from our mistakes and misfortunes, and the world is a worse-off place for it. Think of all the wars that have been fought, and marriages lost, and relationships ruined in the name of blame. Think of all the injustices committed because good people do nothing, never taking any responsibility for anything. We will remain unable to let go of our pasts, to face them with courageous faith, to see them through the lens of faith, through the lens of God's promises, if we remain trapped in bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and blame. Now, I know that some of us in this room, I'm betting a large portion of people in this room have had some really bad, unjust things happen to you. I'm reminded of what we've been going through as a country late, lately, just peeling back our desensitized um, hearts uh, from the perpetual violence against women that is just so ungodly and not right. <laughs> And it feels like there's been a layer of um, hardened skin that's been taken off our hearts lately. I don't know if you felt that. Just, just a re-awareness of, geez, this is not right. And you are not to blame for, for, the, for the terrible things that have happened in your life. And yet still God can use that to bring beauty out of your life. And it begins with believing God. It begins by not rushing ahead. And it begins even by not blaming others. Even those that rightly should be blamed. Letting them go and leaving them in God's hands. 
Now, it's easy to just stand up here and say that. But there's many cases in my life and in the scriptures where I know this to be true. That we don't have to hold on to our past as if we are the sole justice bringers. We can let them go. Look at Joseph. The story of Joseph is beautiful. If you felt like your life is full of people doing you wrong, go and study that man's life. So many unjust turns by his own family betrayed. And yet at the end, he's able to stand in front of them and say, I forgive you. What you intended for harm, God used for greater good. And I want to speak that over your lives today, lady. You guys, that you women that might feel like, God, huh, there's some big things that have happened in my life. And I don't know if I'm, I can trust you. If I can look back at my past with courageous faith, God wants to say what others intended for evil and harm, he can still use for greater good. Look at Jesus. So blameless. He's the definition of a victim, isn't he? He did nothing wrong, perfect in every way, and yet crucified on a cross, spat at and mocked. And yet he refused to be chained by bitterness and blame on that cross, pinned on a bloody cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. Jesus is not asking you to do something that he hasn't already empowered you to do through his example and through his spirit that is in you. What power, freedom, and faith awaits us when we let go of blame and when we stop running ahead of God and when we stop believing lies about God drawing faulty conclusions about who he is based on our view of our pasts. The story of Abraham and Sarah goes on. We're not going to read it now. But three guests come and visit Abraham. And they meet with him and they assure him that Sarah will give birth to her own child. That the, that the way that they had impatiently rushed ahead of God was not God's plan and he wouldn't bless it. At this Sarah, who's eavesdropping outside the, the tent, laughs. And it's not a laugh of joy and of faith. It's of bitterness and cynicism. It's a scoff. And yet under all her issues, God sees something that I certainly would have missed in that laugh. He sees a bruised reed. He sees a smoldering wick. We read in Hebrews, as the writer reflects on the story, that God saw that she had a little faith left. Isn't that beautiful? I would be so, so quick to say, Sarah, you've run ahead, you've duffed it, you, you have, you've canceled out what God was going to do in your life because of how you have so badly missed it. And yet God saw, even in her scoff, a little faith, just a little, just a tiny bruised reed, a smoldering Wick, and it is enough. At our darkest and most unlovable, God still comes to us and He still whispers His promises over us and He's still faithful to complete them. He still draws near despite ourselves, despite the lies we believe. Thank goodness that the object of our faith is more important than the quality of our faith, hey? How about you? And sorry, just to finish that story, uh, I'm sure that you've heard it before, but a year later, Sarah is holding a beautiful baby boy in her arms. She was barren. She was past childbearing years, and she's holding a baby. Isn't that amazing? And she calls him Isaiah, which means laughter. And now she's not scoffing. It's not a laughter that's hardened and cynical. It's pure joy. And she laughs over this baby, and he laughs back. God is faithful to fulfill the promises over your life, ladies, just as he was with Sarah. We're going to create some time now for each of us to reflect on our own past and to look at them through grace-healed eyes, to have courageous faith. We're going to reflect in the form of a letter to ourselves and um, we'd love you to write to a younger version of yourself. You get to choose what age and stage you are. 
Perhaps you want to write to your past self and correct a faulty view at the time that you had of God and tell yourself what God is really doing in this portion of your life and what he is teaching you in this time and what he will do. Either way, let's courageously face our pasts with renewed faith, also that we can let the past remain in the past and move on. Amen? And Foskamp says this, God reveals himself in rear view mirrors. Sometimes we need to drive a long distance before we can look back and see God in the rear view mirror. Sometimes we need to drive about as far as heaven. <laughs> but God reveals himself sometimes in rear view mirrors. And that's what we're going to have faith that he can do now with us. That as we look back and we reflect on our lives, that we'll see the shape not just of pain and of our own mistakes and choices, but of God. We'll see God. Sarah's great test was unmet dreams. They made her suspicious of God's goodness. They made her compromise and run ahead of God. And they made her for a little time bitter and cynical and play the victim. And it's the same with us. What are your unmet dreams? Is life different to how you hoped it would be? How could this have made you harder or caused you to lean harder instead into him? Let's rewrite our pasts by seeing them now with grace-healed eyes. In a way, we can't rewrite our pasts, but we can rewrite the way we see them. And we must in order to move forward. As you write, I'm praying that words are written on your heart, that his words go deep into us, that as you reflect and we take some time to do that, that you would lean in, that your cheek would touch his, and as you look back, you would see your past as he sees it and as he sees you.